if you weren't here last week, we um, began talking about uh, constructs or images of God that we hold in our heads. And uh, we said that constructs are essentially um, those concepts or those pictures, those images of God that we've all formed, and they govern how we think about God, and consequently then how we live our lives as well. Uh, That was the main topic, and we showed that uh, we all come up with these pictures of God uh, in our heads, and and by that I mean we have these ideas of how God, um, how he acts in this world, what he thinks of you, what he thinks of your neighbor, uh, what um, is his involvement in his, in his creation? Is he near? Is he far? Uh, does he look at us with love or as a doting grandfather looks on their child, on their grandchild who can do no harm in their eyes? Is that how God sees us? You know, are we just constantly pleasing God no matter what we do? Um, I doubt it. <laughs> is he angry with us? Um, can he be coerced? We talked about the, uh, what we call the vending machine God last week. We talked about this God that if we can figure out the formula, the right you know, course of action to get God to do what we want, then basically we have a genie in our back pocket that we can call in at any time. It's pretty convenient. Um, is that who God is? And the other image or the other construct we looked at last week was the bodyguard construct, which is this idea that God is primarily concerned with our safety, with our well-being. He's there to make sure that we are comfortable and secure. Is that who God is? And so all of these ideas, and there are countless more, there are so many, we all have different pictures of God in our head. Um, But the point is that we all get these pictures of God in our head, and none of us can escape that. And the reason we discussed last week was because we... Uh, are trying to define, essentially, the undefinable. We uh, are using finite language. That's language confined by time and space and our experience. Um, We're using finite concepts. We're using uh, these images to capture, to essentially wrap our heads around the infinite, the undefinable, beyond our experience, beyond our understanding. So, of course, we're stuck with Constructs. We're stuck with pictures in our head that will help us get there. And some of those constructs that we just talked about, some of these constructs are destructive. They actually will leave us deflated. They will lead us down the wrong path. They will um, ultimately lead to the destruction of our faith, or at least an apathetic faith for many of us. And so, we want to avoid those ones, as it turns out. Um, And the question then is, how do we do that? How can we make sure that the views of God that we hold are going to line up with reality and our expectations? They're not going to let us down. And um, that's the big question that we want to explore this morning. Because if we're all stuck with an inadequate picture of God, how um, how do we avoid the destructive constructs? the destructive constructs. How do we make sure that the picture of God that we hold in our heads isn't going to one day cause us to turn our backs on him altogether? And so this morning we want to turn a corner on this discussion and we want to tackle it as best we can in the next 
30 or so minutes. I admit that last week I went slightly over. I have that tendency. I'll try to reel it in this week. Um, now, we hopefully all agree that we are stuck with these constructs, that this is sort of the situation we're in as humans, um, that creating these pictures or these images of God in our head, and that we're probably not going to get it right. Not 100% of the time, that's for sure. Uh, I finished last week with that passage from 1 Corinthians um, that Paul, Paul wrote, and I'm going to uh, share it this week as well, it's, but this one is from the message, which is a slightly paraphrased version. He says, we don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist, but it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright, and we'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly as he knows us. Now, I know that Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth in this passage, and and generally speaking to us as Christians as well, but the truth is this passage actually refers to every human, regardless of worldview or religion or ideology or philosophy that you prescribe to. We're all in the same boat on this one. None of us have a clear view of God, or even of reality for that matter. That said, it's at this point where, kind of left off last week, and it's at this point where I think the Christian worldview diverts from all other major uh, religions or worldviews or ideologies or philosophies or whatever. Um, Because whereas every religion or whatever has to somehow arrive at a means of how they grapple with understanding the divine, how do they make sense of God or gods or whatever, As Christians, we have the unique advantage of the solution to this actually being built into the very fabric of the narrative that we profess. This is the the heart of our faith. The story that lies at the heart of the Christian faith is as close to providing a means of comprehending God's true nature as you can possibly get. And if you're still wondering, like, who is he talking about? It's Jesus. Right? You all caught that? Yes. Good, good, good. (laughs) Uh, It was about 700 years before Jesus was on scene that the prophet Isaiah penned these words. He said, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel. And we read this passage at Christmas all the time, don't we? What does Emmanuel mean? Who knows what Emmanuel means? Shout it out. God with us, right. Emmanuel means God with us. You want to know what God is like? We believe as Christians that that is best represented to the person of Jesus. Let me present them to you in a way that your finite, limited bodies, your brains are able to comprehend. Let me show you directly by making him become one of you, living among you, dwelling within you, allowing you to touch him, to reach out and experience him directly. That's what God is saying through Isaiah. That was the promise 700 years before Jesus even stepped on this earth. He is going to come, and it will no longer be these constructs that you have to build that are just based on your religious 
traditions, your philosophies, your ideologies, whatever. It will be the actual person of Jesus. This is what Paul says in Philippians, which I think is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Um, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being made in human likeness. This is not a theology class where we're going to prove to you the divinity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus or whatever. This is, this is just sharing some of these scriptures with you and you can let them speak for themselves. But if, I, if you were to strip down all the beliefs of Christianity, if you were to narrow our theology down to one single point, um, it would be that God, the infinite, ineffable, completely other, descends to humanity to become finite, tangible, within reach, to become one of us. Amen? That's really at the heart of our faith. That's really at the heart of the Christian worldview. That God actually becomes human. And this is what separates us from every single religious uh, every other religion, every other ideology, every other philosophy, every other sort of line of reasoning, this flies in the face of all of that. And they all have their own means of how they understand God. We're not debating that. What we're saying is that for Christians, this is how we are called to understand God. Um, there's this beautiful conversation that takes place in the upper room with, uh, with Jesus and his disciples. Um, and the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John captures this in his gospel in, in chapter 14. Uh, he, Jesus had just um, shared with his disciples that he was going away. And this, of course, left them distraught. They are kind of like confused, they're a little bit sad. And so he begins this, this is this, this comforting that he brings to him because he is known for doing that. And he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And then then he says, from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Wait. What? Stop there for a sec. Jesus says, you do know the Father. You do know who God is. And you've seen him. And he says, now you and I know what's coming. Now you and I know what's coming, but these disciples were a little bit slow on the uptake. Um, And Philip wasn't quite picking up what what Jesus was laying down. And so Philip says, Lord... Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Like, okay, you say we already know him? Where is he? He's looking around. He's like, I, I don't get it. Show, that's all we need. Just, just show him to us. And Jesus probably rolled his eyes and said, okay, let me break this down for you a little bit slower. Um, but just like you and I, first century Jews had their own constructs of God, didn't they? They had their own understanding of what they thought God was like. For instance, if you were poor, they believed that God was cursing you. If you were rich, 
God was, uh, God loved you and you, and you were uh, favored by him. First century Jews would have believed that if you were sick, God was punishing you. They would have believed that they were God's favorite people in the world. That he had a particular bias toward them. They also would have believed that God was like a warrior God. He was violent. And he was going to one day come down and destroy all of their enemies, namely Rome at this point in time. That he would conquer Caesar and he would set up his, his kingdom and it would be like, yes, we won, look at us. So they had these views, and including these disciples, they had similar views as the other folks in, the, in first century Palestine. This is how they perceived God. And so Jesus is coming along and he's starting to dispel those constructs, starting to break them down. He's saying, you already know what God is like because you've seen me. And so Philip asked Jesus, this is what we think we know of him. Now help clarify it in our minds. Show him to us so we can walk away with a clear picture of what he's actually like. This God that is, is so big, he's beyond our understanding. This God that we have to come up with metaphors and pictures in order to get a, an understanding of who he is. You know, Jesus, if you are saying that we already know him, just, you know, all we need is for you to point him out to us. That's it. We'll be happy. We'll be good to go from there and we'll move on. And this is how Jesus answers. He said, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone, listen to this, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That just blew everyone of them out of the water because they're like, wait a sec. We have this view of God and this view of God and you're telling us that anyone who's seen you has seen the Father? How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That the words I say to you, I don't speak of my own authority. Rather, it's the Father who lives in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He reiterates that. Or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. So Jesus here brings it all home, lets the cat out of the bag. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, you want me to show you what God is like? Just look at me, he says. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Any confusion, any uh, clarity that you're seeking about who God is and what he's like, I am a perfect representation of all you need to know about who God is. He's saying that to his disciples, but he's also saying that to us 2,000 years later. In fact, he's saying, don't look anywhere else for your constructs of God. Don't look to your, uh, your upbringing, your youth. Don't look to your education. Don't look to um, your traditions. Don't look to anything else. Look to me, the person of Jesus. Build your constructs of this infinite God based on me. I am God revealed to you. Uh, the author of Hebrews 12, verse 2, says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For Christians to develop a constructive construct of who God is, we don't begin with the belief system or a theology. We don't begin with a philosophy or a, a particular logic. We suspend all of that and we say, okay, when we, accept, when we think of God, we begin by thinking of a person. 
We fix our eyes on the person of Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. One uh, translation says the author and the finisher of our faith, the one where it begins and where it ends. Jesus is the entire essence of our faith found right in the person of Jesus. Later on in uh, John, in chapter 17, Jesus is praying for, his, uh, for the disciples and for the world. It's a big, long prayer that many of you are familiar with. He says this in verse 2. He says, For you granted him, and he's speaking about his, himself in third person, authority over all people that he might have eternal life to those you have given him. Um, and then he goes on to describe what that eternal life is. Now, when we think of eternal life, we think of living in heaven with God or living on a new earth or whatever forever. We think of time, eternal life as a, this construct of time. Jesus didn't think that way because he actually spells out what eternal life is. He says this in the next verse. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life to Jesus meant to know God and to know Jesus. To truly know that God. Because eternal life begins and ends with God. Hmm. And so every Christmas we celebrate our access to eternal life when when we celebrate Emmanuel. This God who's come to earth. This God who is with us. God, come to give us eternal life. How? By showing us who God is through Jesus. That's what eternal life is. Think about that. Showing us who Jesus is, or who God is, through the person of Jesus. So then, if everything that Jesus said, and everything that Jesus did through his life, in one way or another, points to the Father... The question to ask is, what are the sorts of things that Jesus said, and what are the sorts of things that Jesus did that would reveal to us who God is and what he is like? What do we know about Jesus that leads us to know the God, uh, know what God the Father is like, that will help us in our understanding of who God is, of what his heart is, of how he thinks about us, of what he thinks of the world? of his creation, of how he thinks of our neighbors, of one another, how he acts towards us, of how close he is, how distant he is. Ultimately, as Jesus is noting, what, what is it about Jesus' life that will lead us to eternal life? Because once we get ideas of who God is that are actually constructive, that are actually helpful, then we have access to eternal life. And so last week we closed with two destructive constructs that don't help us in our faith that don't lead to eternal life. We looked at uh, the vending machine guy, we looked at um, the bodyguard guy, and we said, okay, those are not going to lead to life, to eternal life. And so this week we want to close with three that do, uh, that bring eternal life. And, and they're very simple. Again, we fix our eyes on Jesus, as the scriptures tell us, the author and the perfecter of our faith, for where we begin in constructing our image of God. The first one is this. God loves us with reckless abandon. Here's a challenge uh, I'll give you. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this. I've gone through this before, and I actually have done this. Every single page of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single page speaks of Jesus in some way or another 
expressing love to those around him. Every page. My challenge to you is this. If you don't believe me, take the Gospels, go through them, and see if that's true. See if you can't find a place or a page that Jesus does not at some point or another express love, show love in some profound way to those around him. He might be healing uh, the Roman centurion's daughter, right? He might be feeding 5,000 people. He might be protecting the vulnerable against the power structures of the day. Um, one of the most touching to me that really just captures God's love or Jesus' love for us, which then captures God's love, is when he's riding into Jerusalem and the scriptures say that he weeps for the city. Do you remember that part? And uh, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen. He weeps for them because they are so confused and they're so lost. And he's praying, he's, he weeps for their salvation. And Jesus knows that in just a couple of days, these people are going to turn their hearts against him and they're going to want to crucify him. And yet he cries for them because of his love. Or he's hanging on the cross and he says, God, God, forgive these people. These people are torturing me. They don't even know what they're doing. That's his heart. It's love. But, you know, every page is filled with this love that Jesus has for us. But one story really in my heart is one of the, my favorite stories. I speak about it a lot when actually when I, when I uh, share from the front. Um, but it's the, it demonstrates his tender, unfailing love in such a profound and beautiful way. And it's um, one of the stories that he tells. Uh, it comes out of Luke 15. It's the parable of the lost son. And most of us are familiar with this story. And, and I'm going to go over it briefly. We're not going to dive into it too deep, but there's a son. There's two sons. We're going to look at one of them. And he asks for his inheritance before uh, his father is dead. And so his father gives him the inheritance. He gives him his money. He says, go and do what you will. And so his son's like, sweet. This is awesome. He runs away, and he starts partying it up pretty hard. He spends a lot of money on girls and booze and drugs and parties and whatever. And the money's gone in no time. And so he squandered it all away, and now he's left with nothing. And he starts suffering as you would in his, poverty, in his impoverished state. Um, and he gets so bad that he actually comes to the end of his, his rope, and he's like, okay, uh, I don't have many options before me right now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to grovel at my father's feet and ask if I can just be his servant. That's all I need. And so he starts kind of uh, coming up with the, the line, the, 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 the story, the, the apology, the repentance that he's going to give to his father as he's walking the long journey home. And then this is what the Bible says in chapter uh, 15. He says, but while he was still a long way off, and again, this is a picture, Jesus says, of who God is. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on, and put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. And I love, 
I love this picture. The father waiting day after day for his son to return, full of hope, full of expectation for his return. And then that first glimpse of him down the driveway. I don't know what this world would have looked like back then, but I'm sure it was a long journey, a long path. And he saw his son from a long way off. And he bursts out from his front porch, running with reckless abandon toward his son, wraps his arms around him, and just holds him. Imagine if God loved us that much. If, as wayward children, we return to him, what kind of reaction, what kind of response we would expect if that was the kind of response we could get? If you're looking to build the construct of God this morning, a a new understanding of who God is, this is a really good place to start. I'd really recommend this story. And as sort of a bonus mini-construct of God um, that we'll just mention briefly, notice how quickly the father in this story forgives his son. There's no penance. There's no punishment. There's no uh, further consequences. Just forgiveness. Quick, kill the calf, let's get down and party. My son who is dead is alive again. Pull out all the stops, let's do this. So if you're looking for an understanding of the graciousness and the mercy of God, again, this is a really good story to start with. And I would encourage anyone to begin here with constructing God. So that's the first helpful construct. And this is the kind of construct I think will lead to eternal life. And the second one is this. God is fundamentally self-giving. He is fundamentally sacrificial. He's fundamentally other-centered. I don't know what the best word is here, but basically he cares about us. And it's because of number one that number two is true. Because of his love for us that number, um, that we can say confidently that he is at his core, at who he is, other-centered, sacrificial. And we see this in the life of Jesus. Now, one of the pictures that the Bible often uses to describe Jesus is uh, that of a king, King Jesus. And in one way, a king was a really great picture of of God. It it provides a helpful construct to how we can understand who uh, the Father is. Um, Kings are in charge. They're at the top. Uh, They call the shots. Uh, They set the rules. They set the boundaries. Uh, All those things are absolutely true of God. And and, and so that metaphor really stands out. It works. Um, But one thing that the traditional concept of king gets wrong when we project it onto our Heavenly Father or onto Jesus is that of power. More specifically, a different kind of power. And uh, I hope... All of us will understand that. Kings with the largest army, with the most money in the bank, with the greatest amount of resources, the most land, they are naturally the most powerful. Caesar, the emperor of Rome, would have been the most powerful person in the world at the time. He's the king. That makes sense. Which is why when Jesus bends down to wash the dirty, stinky feet of his disciples in the upper room, there was a lot of confusion. What are you doing? Which is why when Jesus is hanging on a cross with a crown of thorns wrapped around him as a mockery to his royalty, his disciples are again bewildered and confused. And they're like, maybe this isn't what we thought. 
maybe this idea that we have of who King Jesus is was wrong. Maybe he's not a king. Maybe he is something else. Years ago, I was in a movie. You can ask me about it sometime. I'll be happy to tell you. Uh, but not right now. And uh, <laughs> one time, I get to drop that line like once every two years. So just let me have it, okay? <laughs> one time in between takes, uh, because we did takes, I was uh, having a conversation with one of the actors, and he wasn't like a big name actor or anything, but he did have a couple lines in the movie. Anyway, beside the point, um, and we were talking about our Christian faith. He was a professing Christian as well, and he portrayed his desire for what he wished the church and, and culture and the world would portray Jesus as being. And I just couldn't get on board with what he was saying about who he thought or who he wanted Jesus to be. He, he talked about him as being um, this more muscular, and his words were Rambo-like. He wanted Jesus to be Rambo-like. This, this is the kind of picture that I, in my head, I was like, I don't think you get it. You are missing the point of who Jesus is and what he was all, if this is who Jesus is to you, you are, you're not reading the same gospels I'm reading. And as I reflected on this conversation over the past couple of years, it, it makes sense to me that the constructs that this guy had of Jesus probably came out of a fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus was all about. Jesus wasn't big on power the way that the world thought of power or conquering the way that the world thought of it. And the cross is Jesus' way to demonstrate that the power structures of man, the understanding of conquering that the world has in its head, is not the way to eternal life. Do you want to have the eternal life that Jesus speaks of? Do you want to know what the one true God is like? Look at the cross. Just not with that guy on it. Look at this cross. At the laying down of his life, the selflessness, the sacrifice, the serving spirit, the serving attitude. This is who your king is. This is what your God is like. Not the muscle-bound Rambo who's on a rampage and is going to just destroy everyone once he's done being on the cross. But the humble servant, sacrificing, giving of himself, laying down his life freely, knowing the Father starts at the cross. Amen? You guys can say amen. amen. All right. And finally, the third one is this. So God loves you. Good place to start. God loves you like crazy. We're going to sing a song about that in a, in a few minutes here. Um, it's very common and one of my favorites. God is fundamentally self-giving. Absolutely true. And finally, God's work is about restoration. This is about like, okay, well, what is God up to? What, you know, this question is asked by many of us. What is he all about in this world? And so last week we talked about the bodyguard God. And we said that... Um, you know, this idea that God seems to care more, most about our safety and our well-being than anything else, like that was the most important thing, and it's a, it's a terrible construct, and it has disgusted and destructive worldviews. I think one or two of you came up to me and said, you know what, that bodyguard God makes me think of the prosperity gospel, and I agree. You know, if God wants us to be healthy and wealthy and, and super comfortable, then you're going to end up with this kind of demented gospel, which is terrible. That said, we all know that the story of Jesus dying on the cross in which God allowed his son to suffer doesn't end on the cross. 
right? That three days later, he's risen and he shows death who's boss. He shows pain and suffering and hurt who's boss. And so what does this say about who the father is? What does this say about the fundamental nature of God? Well, it shows us that the Father actually is in the business of healing and protecting and redemption. It's not the way that we envision it or want it to be sometimes. And Jesus' resurrected body boldly proclaims that. He's restored fully. And so it might not look like it from our vantage point, but we're asked to trust that it'll eventually get there. Right? Which means for you, and which means for me, that our suffering in this world, our, our pain, our hurts, they may need to be endured, but there is this promise of restoration, this promise of renewal, this promise of ultimate redemption, because that is who God is. This is the Father. This is why we can have peace and why we can have confidence in who God is. This is why we can go to God and ask him to protect, to heal to do that, that's fine. Because Jesus' resurrected body proclaims that it will be so. And so as we consider the constructs of God this morning, Christians have the unique advantage of looking to the person of Jesus. And so we should be challenged every time one of those old ideas of God creeps into our mind, and they have their tendency to do that. You know, uh, is God angry with me? Is he spiteful? Is he distant? Is that God violent? Some of these ideas can creep into our head. They, they're competing with all sorts of other ideas that we might have. You know, is he a machine? Is he a bodyguard? Does he want me wealthy? And I, and I say, no, no, wait, wait. Is this who Jesus is presented as in the gospel? Start there. This is where we are to begin. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Amen? My conviction is that it, our understanding of God will better line up with our reality if we fix our eyes on Jesus. My understanding of God will better line up with the reality I experience if we begin with Jesus. God's disposition toward you is love. Reckless, abandoned love. God's character is fundamentally self-giving, sacrificial, other-centered because of his love. And three, God's work is concerned primarily with redemption and restoration. Start there. If you, for those of you who are um, sort of sick of the destructive constructs of God that, uh, that keep letting you down, Start here. Start with these three ideas. For those who maybe have turned away from God and maybe have been disillusioned, maybe have said, you know what? He isn't who I thought he was going to be. I'm done with this. Start here. Start with these three ideas of God. Seriously. Um, for those of you who are maybe carrying a lot of baggage from whatever, from your youth, your, your experience growing up in the church, maybe from... Um, maybe from the Bible, the way you've read the Bible, maybe from an experience you've had, and you just need to like say, okay, enough of this crap. 
what is God really like? Start right here. Start here. Deconstruct whatever baggage, whatever ideas you have of God that are toxic and that are destructive, and then reconstruct with these, these ideas of who God is. This is a great place to start. This is where the, every conversation on God should start. Um, I was playing basketball yesterday with uh, my son Graham. I'm going to close now. Um, and it was in the morning or whatever, and there was this tree. What is that, a lilac tree? What? Everyone's like, wah, 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 wah. I need like a doctor of forestry in here. What is it? Okay, yeah, that's what I told my son. I said, Graham, this is a prunus <laughs> tree. Um, it's, anyway, we were playing basketball, and this tree is right beside our, 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 the, the basketball net, and we're shooting around or whatever, and he stops and he says, whoa, look at that beautiful tree, Dad. It's so beautiful, I thought it was fake. <laughs> but it wasn't fake. It, it wasn't, I, you know, we walked up to the tree and I touched the leaves and we touched the flowers. And when, then we smelled the, the, the aroma that came from the tree. It had a nice aroma to it. And, and a bird actually even went into the top. We watched a bird land near the top of the tree. And it goes without saying, but the difference between a construct and a reality is that constructs are fake. Right? They may lead us and point us to the reality, but they themselves are not the reality. They are a fake tree. And so the invitation that we have this morning is to know the Father, not as some detached construct or some detached idea that is out there, but as the real deal. And then... The Father does one further by becoming the real deal. Living, walking, dying as a human. Showing us exactly how we can know the Father. That's pretty cool when you stop and think about it. And you have to kind of get rid of all the cliches and everything. And actually, like, wow, that is a profound idea. It's beautiful. Um, I've been thinking lately about the mystery of faith. And it's not that we can't comprehend God, which I've always thought that this is the mystery of faith, we can't comprehend God, but actually that in spite of our limitations, in spite of our finitude, in spite of our otherness from God, against all logic, we can do more than comprehend God. We're actually invited to have intimacy with God. To touch, to see, to feel, to know his presence. Let's, let's pray. Jesus, you are beautiful. Man, what a plan it was for you to come to earth to show us 2,000 years ago what you were like. So that 2,000 years later, we can still be worshiping and have a pretty good idea of what God is like, what the Father is like. That is a really awesome move you did. Thank you. 
God, for those who maybe are at a state in their life, a stage in their faith journey, where um, they need to let a lot of stuff go, uh, this morning I pray for them. This morning I pray that they would um, strip away everything that is unnecessary and start with the person of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you love us. Thank you, Father, that you are self-giving. Thank you, Father, that you are caring about our redemption and restoration of who we are and every awful bad thing is being restored to its good, beautiful, original state or even better. Father, help us to cling to those promises, cling to that reality of who we are. Help us to form the image of God in our heads with those ideas, not so we can have a detached idea, but so that we can become, so that we can have intimacy with you. We can know you and through that have eternal life, which is to know you. And now, Father, as we gather around the table, again, taking tangible signs of the again, throwing back 2,000 years to the reality of you walking this earth as a human, embodying your love, embodying your sacrifice, and embodying the act of restoration in these, in these acts of the bread and the cup. Help us to contemplate that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You are welcome to the table.